please do join me in taking out your Bibles once again to Psalm 98 and also maybe have handy the insert that has all of the lyrics to joy to the world. Let's uh, approach God now in prayer and ask for his help. Father, we do thank you uh, that Jesus has come and has brought joy to the world, and Jesus will return. He will come again and bring joy to that renewed earth, the new heavens and the new earth. Father, may our time in your word today um, please you, and may it build your people up in the faith that you've given us in Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Christmas music is in the church. In fact, if you take your index of the Trinity hymnal and you look at the various sections of the hymnal, you know what the largest section is of hymns in our hymnal? It's Advent and Birth, hymns 193 through 233. The church recognizes the importance of Not just of the advent and birth of Jesus, of course, but the music surrounding that. Christmas music is in the church and Christmas music is in the world. It's it's really everywhere. Wherever you go now, chances are in the radio, in the car, in the stores, in the shops, in the restaurants, even in the elevators, you may hear Christmas music. And we live, of course, in an increasingly post-Christian society and culture. And so Christmas music can serve as a point of contact between believers and unbelievers. It can serve as a bridge, a common language of sorts, to allow people to connect. But as we mentioned last week, a lot of folks don't know what they're singing But they may even be singing joy to the world. It's the most familiar. It's the most popular. And I wonder if it's popular and familiar just because it's played a lot and sung a lot. Or there may be a deep longing for joy. People looking for joy. Trying to fill up their lives with things that are artificial and on the surface. But they're looking for deep joy. Joy here in the end of 2023 with divisions, wars, the threat of terrorism, a chronic low-grade cynicism with an acute sense of hopelessness that rears its head sometimes. And yet as Christians, we have been given the message of joy and no hymn captures that better than joy to the world. Uh, Last evening, Michelle and I uh, were at a home here in Bellevue, um, an open house. And uh, after a bunch of folks were there, we were um, eating and talking and visiting. And the host kind of had everybody quiet down and stop eating. And he he gave a little meditation on Christmas. But you know what? We had to sing a hymn or two. And guess what hymn we all sang without hymnals? The first verse of Joy to the World. 
We're in our second of four weeks where we're unpacking and exploring and exposing the biblical truth found in this hymn. It's a topical expositional sermon. It's using the words of the hymn as a launching point into the scriptures. Uh, The hymn's central theme, of course, is there is great joy. Great joy in the Lord's coming, in his rule, in his blessing, and in his favor. We know that George Frederick Handel, the great composer, composed the the outlines of this tune, the melody. It was arranged by Lowell Mason, but the words were Isaac Watts. He is known as the father of English hymnody for good reason. He composed somewhere between 6,000 or he wrote 600 to 750 hymns. Remember I mentioned last week, he complained about the lyrics of the psalms that the church was singing. He said the poetry was terrible. Why, why do we just have to uh, sing psalms? Hey, why are we ignoring the fact that Christ has come? His father said, if you think you can do better, then why don't you write verse for worship? And he did. And Joy to the World comes from that 1719 collection of hymns The Psalms of David imitated in the language of the New Testament and applied to the Christian state and worship. It's not a paraphrase, but an imitation. It's rewriting the psalm with the lens of Christ has come. I've been reading a book uh, called The Poetic Wonder of Isaac Watts. It's in a series of biographies of well-known historical figures in the church. And yesterday... As I was rereading a chapter on, um, in particular, um, Watts's uh, reworking of the Psalms, I ran across something, and uh, I think we need to hear it. It's a, a paragraph I'll read. So as you know, Watts was rewriting the Psalms. And this is what the author says in this book. But not everyone finds joy in Watts' words. Advocates of exclusive psalmody have been determined to silence him. Oddly, this requires them to silence words such as, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun does his successive journeys run. One notable example of such efforts occurred in America. The Reverend Adam Rankin arrived in Philadelphia to make his appeal to the General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church in May 1789. He declared, quote, I have ridden horseback all the way from my home in Kentucky to ask this body to refuse the great and pernicious error of adopting the use of Isaac Watts' hymns in public worship in preference to the Psalms of David. Kentucky, once again, maybe is not the best representative of things there. Yes, did not like Isaac Watts' hymns. But thankfully, it's in our hymnal. The GA in 1789 in Philadelphia must not have listened to this pastor from Kentucky, and we should be thankful. You'll notice in the insert that it's two parts. Uh, Verses 1 through 3 of Psalm 98 is uh, the first part, and then joy to the world is verses 4 through 9. Uh, Listen now as I read once again Psalm 98. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. 
The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of the melody. With trumpets and the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the Lord, the King. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. Well, as we begin, I want to make a proposition. And that's this. There is joy in being under the reign of Jesus. There is joy being ruled by Jesus. Are you kidding? I mean... I think most of us would say there is really no delight in being ruled. Why? Because we want to be, we want to rule. We don't want to be ruled. I mean, just look at the government. Look at my boss. And people transfer their views of government, their views of their boss, into their understanding of God. And there's no joy. There's only terror and fear because God, like my boss and maybe like aspects of the government, is in absolute control and not very nice. Ask a Muslim sometime what he or she believes about Allah. How about you? Do you find that there is joy in being ruled? Or rather, would you sort of say, I find more joy in ruling? So there's a proposition and there's a claim in verse two that there is joy to the earth. And why? Why can Watts say there is joy to the earth. Of course, he's getting it from Psalm 97, Psalm 98 in particular. But he gives us a reason in his lyrics because the Savior reigns. You see, joy can be and joy should be the right attitude to our being ruled when we recognize who is ruling us. Now, already in that first verse of the hymn, Watts has used. The word Lord, he's used the word king. What kind of Lord? What kind of king are we talking about? My friends, we are talking about a savior king. Not a tyrant king. Not an authoritarian king. Not a dictator king. But a savior king. I don't think his choice of words was accidental, but rather deliberate. You see, Watts is making a statement, bringing together these words, Savior reigns. A king reigns, right? 
a Savior reigns? Until you sang joy to the world, would you have put those two words together? The Savior reigns? Well, in order to be able to sing joy to the world with integrity, with an undivided heart, actually meaning what you are singing, we're going to consider this claim that the Savior reigns by looking at three aspects of the Savior's reign through a New Testament lens. It's expectation, it's achievement, and it's being made known. So let's look first at the Savior's reign expected. There was an expectation, of course, all throughout the scriptures of the Old Testament for a Messiah. Hebrew, the anointed one. Greek, the Christ. We see throughout the Old Testament the promises being made for a Messiah to come. In fact, the entire Old Testament witness from Genesis 3.15, as we talked about in the adult adult and youth class this morning, from Genesis 3.15 on, everything leans forward to this coming Messiah, this coming prophet, priest, and king like no other. We've seen already in our study of Luke, and we saw it in our study of Acts, that there were expectations for the Christ. There were expectations for the Messiah, but he did not necessarily look like what they were hoping for, expecting. Remember John the Baptist in prison? One of the reasons why he's doubting is, is Jesus really the one or should we look for another? Because I'm in prison and if I'm following him, most definitely I should not be in prison. And even after the resurrection, before the spirit is poured out at Pentecost, the disciples gather around Jesus right before his ascension and say, hey, are you going to return the kingdom now to Israel? Expectations for earthly triumph. Possibly. In the Psalms, we see the themes of salvation. We see the themes of the rule and reign of God the Lord. Uh, Psalm 93 1, the Lord reigns. Psalm 95 1, the rock of our salvation. Psalm 96 2, tell of his salvation. Our Old Testament reading, Psalm 97, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. And Psalm 98, if you look at those first three verses, three times, excuse me, yeah, three times in the first three verses, salvation, salvation, salvation. There's a relationship between the Lord reigning and the Lord saving. In that quote from the book, there was a line from uh, Watts's hymn, Jesus shall reign. And here's what verse four of Watts' hymn on Psalm 72 says, Blessings abound where'er he reigns. The prisoner leaps to lose his chains. The weary find eternal rest, and all the sons of want are blessed. I mean, Watts is even seeing, of course, Jesus in Psalm 72, the coming one who has come to reign. And we've heard from our New Testament reading in Luke's 1 and 2, uh, salvation and rule combined. 
the angel announces to Mary the coming of Jesus. Matthew's account talks about Jesus. He'll be named Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. And we continue to read in Luke 1 about the throne and the reign. In Luke 2, the angel announces to the shepherds what good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. He speaks of a birth of a Savior who is Christ the Lord, a Savior who is the Lord. Now, I've said before, and I have to remind myself, that you don't necessarily get what you expect, right? Sometimes we do, sometimes we don't. But you really do get what you inspect. So let's take a closer look at the Savior's reign, and let's inspect, first of all, how it was achieved. I remember all of my professors at Westminster, most of them, would say something like this. The New Testament is the surprise ending of the Old Testament. The New Testament is the surprise ending. I mean, if you had finished the Old Testament, read Malachi, and then there's that 400 years of silence where God did not speak through the prophets, would you have come up with what the New Testament reveals? I don't think any of us would have. But we have, of course, in the New Testament, a revelation of how the Savior's reign is achieved. A plan, a plan of salvation. I mean, if you had to come up with a plan, how would you design it? Uh, Would it be God becoming man? Now, most religions had the plan of men becoming gods, right? But was there a plan Would it be God becoming man? Would it it be the incarnation, the the invisible, infinite becomes visible and finite? I encourage you to read the something to think about quote where J.I. Packer in Knowing God says, hey, the big hurdle is the incarnation. The big hurdle is Jesus being fully God, fully man. Once, Once you get that, everything else starts making sense. Maybe Christmas, maybe Advent really, really is important. Okay, well, if God becomes man, would he become a superman? Would he show up as the the strong man? No, his humble birth, he shows up as a baby. His humble birth foreshadows his humiliating death. We have the the, the first catechism, which is a reworking of the children's catechism. And it's got a great question, question 54. What is meant by the atonement? What is meant by the atonement? And here's the answer. Christ satisfied God's justice by his suffering and death as a substitute for sinners. Isn't it awesome when kids two and three and four and 46 and 53 can memorize that? What is meant by the atonement that Christ satisfied God's justice by his suffering and death as a substitute for sinners? Who would have come up with that plan? And we see in in Luke already, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And how did Jesus save 
Well, we heard it in Dan's prayer. He saved through his perfect life of obedience. He saved through his atoning death in our place. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty he might that you by his poverty might become rich. If you turn over to Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2, you'll hear these words in verses 6 through 8 as Paul speaks of Jesus Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The Savior's reign achieved. How does Jesus save? Jesus saves us by not saving himself. And that helps all of us see the great reversal of the gospel. You see, Jesus saves by becoming weak. We see that in Isaiah 53 and by giving up his life. It's interesting. um, Our shorter catechism speaks of Jesus being our redeemer in his estates of humiliation and uh, exaltation. And we see in uh, question 26 about Jesus being a king and how does he execute the office of a king. And I thought I had it memorized and I do at times, but just to be sure, this is what question 26 says. How does Christ execute the office of a king? Christ executes the office of a king in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. And you know what the next question deals with? The humiliation of Jesus. Right beside speaking of Jesus' being king, we, we speak of Jesus' humiliation, of being bore, born, suffering, death on a cross. You see, at the center of the gospel is the cross. The means of death for Jesus are the means of life for us. Okay, back to the statement, the Savior reigns. Yeah, the skeptical person says, yeah, right, the Savior reigns. Sure, just like Jesus lives in my heart, It's an understandable objection, right? It's a good question to ask. And answer is this. How is the Savior's reign that was expected, that was achieved, how's it made known? In other words, how does this invisible reign and rule of Christ become visible? So let's look now at the Savior's reign made known. In other words, how is Jesus' reign displayed and demonstrate. How does the Savior rule? Well, we've got to skip down to verse 4 of Joy to the World, because we read there, He rules the world 
through true grace and truth. Watts, of course, is picking up in John chapter 1 that Jesus is full of grace and truth. And that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus. So how is the Savior's reign made known? How does the Savior rule? How's it made known? Well, it's made known first by people living a life of grace and truth. Grace and truth. I I want us um, to start with truth. Every time I read Proverbs 6 on the sixth day of the month, so I read it at least 12 times a year, I get stuck in Proverbs 6 because we read in verses 16 through 19 this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, one and one who sows discord among the brothers. Wow, in that list of six or in that list of seven, look at this, a lying tongue, a false witness. Someone who breathes out lies. God hates falsehood. God hates lies. God's people love truth. God's people hate lies. The Russian writer, the Soviet critic, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who lived from 1918 to 2008, said something that stuck with me years ago, and it's this. You can resolve to live your life with integrity. Let your credo be this. Let the lie come into the world. Let it even triumph, but not through me. In other words, we're called to be people of truth where the lie stops with us. Jesus, full of grace and truth. He rules the world through grace and truth. Well, let's get to grace. How is the reign of Jesus made known in the life of a Christian? Well, we see it in a life of gratitude in response to being saved. Psalm 97, Psalm 98, salvation, rejoice, give thanks. Our Heidelberg or the Heidelberg Catechism is nicely arranged. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. The Christian's life of obedience is a life of gratitude. It's a life of humility. I mean, James and Peter, can you see those two guys getting together and say, let's talk about humility. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. James and Peter saying the same thing. A life of love. How is it made known? A life of gratitude, a life of humility, a life of love. And walk in love, Paul tells the church, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Well, how is this reign made known in the church? Well, it's a, it's a community of people who have together declared spiritual bankruptcy. 
And they know that that's the entrance into the kingdom of God. John Newton, of course, talked about himself being a miserable sinner and Jesus being an all-sufficient Savior. I'm bankrupt, but my debt is forgiven through Jesus, and now I have this unbelievable deposit made in my account. A church lives by the upside-down values of the kingdom of God. Remember in Mark chapter 10, Jesus is gathering his closest disciples around him and he says, hey guys, it's not like the Gentiles. It's not like the world that lords it over people. No, no, no. The way of the kingdom is you become a servant. You want to be first? No. Be last. Be a servant. So the church lives the upside-down values of the kingdom. The church is a group of people, in other words, who resemble the one who rules them. Think about that for a moment. You resemble who rules you. You take on the characteristics of the one to whom you submit to. The Christian, the church, is called to look like Jesus. Watts picks up on Peter's last words in his second letter. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Four times in his second letter, Peter brings together Lord and Savior. King and Savior. Savior reigns. The Savior's reign expected, as we see in the Old Testament, achieved, as we see in the New Testament, and made known ever since then, including today. There really are only two types of rulers, whether they're the boss, the government, or whatever somebody would call a god. There's the one who, from his office, tells you what to do and can make your life miserable, right? I think we've probably all had experience with that. The person tells you what to do, and the person makes your life miserable. But there's another type of ruler, and even though because of his position, he does tell you what to do, He nevertheless leaves his office. He enters your world and he works alongside you. In fact, this ruler does for you what you are supposed to do. He does it perfectly. And yet he takes the blame for what you fail to do. That's a different kind of ruler, isn't it? Leaves his office, comes to you, comes beside you and does what you can't do and fail to do and takes the blame for your best efforts. Another hymn writer, Charles Wesley, was stunned by this and writes, Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? 
You see, this ruler doesn't make your life miserable. This ruler makes your life absolutely joyful. Isaac Watts' hymn from Psalm 98, praise for the gospel, followed by the joy of the Messiah's coming and kingdom. The order of Psalm 98, a declaration of the gospel, followed by a declaration and demonstration of joy. My friends, there is great joy in a salvation that we did not achieve nor could we ever achieve, but only receive. Only receive as a gift. In response to what we've received from God, what God has done for us, may our gratitude, may our humility, may our love, and may our joy declare and demonstrate to those around us, both in this church and in the world, that we don't rule our lives. Rather, that our lives demonstrate that we are ruled by another, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. May God be pleased to give us grace to sing this truth with joy because the Savior indeed reigns in us and through us. And indeed, let us employ this song and repeat the sounding joy repeat the sounding joy over and over and over again. Amen. Let's pray. Father, when we look around and when we even look in the mirror, we see that we are giving allegiance to others. Others that we subject ourselves to and they rule over us and they make our lives miserable. And we also, Father, we want to rule ourselves. We want to be our own boss, our own dictator, our own authoritarian. We want to call the shots. And yet, when we do that, we're miserable and we make others miserable. So, Father, be pleased through the power of your spirit in us and your word that is living and active. Help us to live in view of the truth that the Savior reigns. And may we, as individuals, as families, as a church, grow more and more to resemble the one who saved us and now rules us. For we pray in his name. Amen.